You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We have been studying through the book of 1 Peter just for a few weeks. This is our third week in it. Uh, and so as I've been reading it, I cannot, I just keep coming back to this thought of how crazy relevant this letter is. And of course, I think I'm a pastor, so I think all the Bible is relevant. But Peter just has this emphasis in a very unique way that just is like eerily relevant to our lives in 21st century America. The main thing that Peter's trying to, to help us see that as, as Christians, he wants us to see ourselves as exiles in this world. Uh, our term for that would be like resident aliens. And so we, we live here, we're, we're connected, we're invested in this place, we care about it, but it's not home. Uh, we're not citizens here. Our citizenship is somewhere else. We have a different homeland. And so we're not detached, but neither are we fully assimilated. We're, we're exiles, we're resident aliens. That's, you know, in the first chapter and midway through the second chapter, that's really the thing he's trying to get into our hearts and into our minds is just to see ourselves this way. Once you kind of get chapter two midway through and then through the end of the letter, he begins to work out that mindset, what it, what it means to live like an exile in very specific areas of our lives. And because we're 21st century Americans, we just want to jump to that part. It's like, oh, give me a word that I can take away and like start doing today. We want to do stuff. And I just want to warn you that if you don't, if you don't pay attention to chapter one, the rest of the letter won't make sense. It, it might make sense, but it certainly won't be doable in any way that's distinctly Christian. And so we have got to settle into what is going on in the first part of this letter. And again, the main thing is that Peter wants us to see that this is not home. This world is not all there is. I remember the first time that I encountered that idea. I was a freshman in college. I was a new Christian. I was in a campus Bible study, and the guy leading the Bible study that day, his name was Jerry. I had spent a lot of time with Jerry, and he, he drew a line, like a long line on this whiteboard, and then in the middle of that line, he just put this little tiny dot, and he looked at us, just a bunch of 18-year-olds, and he said, listen, the line represents eternity. The little dot, that's your life. What are you going to be about? Are you going to be about the line? Or are you going to be about the dot? It's like pretty intense for freshman Bible study, you know? Um, and many of you have seen or heard an idea like that. But for me, sitting in that room, it was, it was mind-blowing. Because that is not why I came to college. Like, college is all about living for the here and now. I mean, college, it, you know, there are so many options of things to do. For the first time in your life, you're free to do whatever you want Uh, There are always people around. There's always stuff going on. If you were to think about the years beyond college, you're really just thinking about what kind of job you want to get, where you want to live, maybe who you want to marry. College is all about living for the dot, which is why I was not prepared for the Bible study question that day. But as I continued to try to live for the dot, to live for myself, that I just could not get that little drawing out of my head. It was, it was annoying me. I couldn't help but wonder, as the months went by, what, what would it look like to live for the line instead of the dot? That's what I think First Peter's about. 
I think 1 Peter is trying to help us understand what it means to live for the line. Let me ask you a question. Uh, It's a given that we all have struggles. We all have issues, challenges, sins, failures, whatever you want to call it. We have struggles. And we all do various things to try to like cope with that or get better at those things and all that. But have you ever like reflected deeply on why you have the struggle you have? Right? So we have struggles with laziness and anxiety and anger and pride and all that kind of stuff. And, And we're aware of that. But have you thought deeply about why that's a struggle? And why we all have it all the time. Like we're not seeming to get over it. Why is that? I think one of the main reasons is that we are living for the dot instead of the line. We'll unpack a little bit why I think that. The big idea in this text for me is exiles live for the line. Christians living in exile in this world live for the line. What does that, what does that mean? Well, Peter gives us three commands in this text, and uh, I think each one is aimed at helping us live this way. And so, Let me just show you where they are. In verse 13, he gives us a command about hope. In verse 15, he gives us a command about holiness or obedience. In verse 17, he gives us a command about fear. So you get these three words that are kind of strange together. Hope and holiness and fear. They're they're connected, but we're going to just look at them individually. Let's begin with hope. Verse uh, 13 He says, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set set your hope fully, all in, on the grace that that is coming your way when Jesus comes back. Uh, When we forget that we're in exile, we start to act as if this world is all there is. Like whatever desires we have, we, we have to get them satisfied here. Whatever aspirations or ambitions we have, we have to accomplish those here because this is all there is. That's the temptation when we, when we forget who we are and where we are. We, we begin to live for the dot. In verse 14, if you look down, Peter calls this our former passions. And this word passion just means to, to desire something or want something, but it's actually it's stronger than that. It's like a hyper-desire. It's like desire in overdrive. It's, it's such a strong desire that you've set your hope on the thing that, it, that you want. If you get it, you'll be happy. If you don't get it, you'll be crushed. It's like desire all in on something that is of this world. And then in verse 18, he says that we, he shows us where we get these desires. He said we, we've inherited this way of life. We've inherited thinking that we've got to satisfy our desires here and now. We've got, we inherit it from our, he says, your forefathers, but really what he just means is your family, your culture, your heritage, all this stuff is just passed down to you. Have you ever thought about why you value the things you value? Why you think some things are good and some things are not good? Some of it's personality and a lot of it is just the culture you grew up in. That's what he's saying. When I lived in Omaha... Uh, I was an outsider, and so all of their issues were very clear to me because they're a different culture, and they did not like that. But uh, what was clear to me was, was they had a strong value of work ethic. It's a blue-collar, Midwestern town, and they have a righteousness of work ethic. 
They, they work hard, and that's a good thing, but it's an over-desire. They want and need to be thought of as people who are committed and who are faithful and who work hard. That's their righteousness. And if you thought of them that way, then they, they were happy. But if you insinuated that they, they did not work hard or that they were lazy or uncommitted, I mean, it was absolutely crushing because that was their cultural value. Austin is not like that. Uh, we pride ourselves. We pride ourselves on being uncommitted. I mean, just go to Whole Foods in the middle of the day. Nobody's working. And, and, and they feel good about themselves because of that. I mean, the people that work at Whole Foods are working. I didn't mean that. I meant all the hundreds and thousands of people who are buying food. Um, we do work hard, but, but it's not for the sake of working hard. We work hard because we want to get to a place where we don't have to work anymore. That's really what we're after. We're after autonomy. We want to be seen as people who are like in control of things and free of our, our schedule and our lives. And that, that to us, that's the idea of the good life. Every culture has their ideals. And here's the thing. If you're not paying attention, you will just get swept up in the culture that you happen to be running with. You ever notice how you kind of just want the things that the people around you have? So if you hang out with people that have houses, you want a house all of a sudden. Trust me, you don't. You don't want a house. They're just problems. Uh, If you hang out with people who dress a certain way over time, you begin to find yourself wanting to dress that way. If you hang out with people who use certain language, certain words and phrases, you start to use those words and phrases. You just, if you're not paying attention, you get swept up into it. The default of the human heart is, is to set your hope on the things of this world because that's what's happening all around us. They're not all bad things, but we just, they're bad things to set your hope on, to go all in on. Peter is saying, if you look in verse 14, he says, look, these passions are based on ignorance. He says, don't be conformed to your, the ignorance of your former passions. The reason people around you are living for the dot is because they haven't seen the line. They don't know it's there. And so all that makes sense to them is to live for the dot. Of course they do. That's what we did too. People without God think they're dreaming big. And in reality, they, just, they have this really small ambition in life, which is to sort of get to the top of the hill of this little tiny subculture that they're in. In verse 18, he says... But setting your hope on these things, on the things of this world, is futile. Why is it futile? Because you were made for another place. You were made for God. And so there's no way that anything in this world could possibly satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And so if you keep going all in on security and power and comfort and money and success and approval and getting that boyfriend or that girlfriend or being married or having kids or having the pool, whatever it is, it just will leave you more anxious and disillusioned than before. It it just can't fill the deep longings. It's futile. And so set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You hear what he's saying? Complete joy is coming. Pure justice is coming. Holy, unconditional love is coming. Rest is coming. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, 
you'll be home. Totally satisfied. Totally fulfilled. Because you'll see him face to face. You're made for him. If you want to live for the line, you have to set your hope on that. And that is a curious phrase. You're being commanded to experience hope. How how do I do that? Set your hope. It's a very active kind of work that's being prescribed here. If you don't cultivate hope in your life, uh, you'll default, again, to just living for the dot. You'll, you'll default to your former passions. And so how do, you, how do you set your mind on the hope that's to come? Well, this little phrase, um, well, look at the two participles. Or, sorry, didn't mean to be a nerd. Look at the two phrases before the command to set your hope. Look how he says to do it. Prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. That's how we go about setting our hope. So this phrase, prepare your mind for action, is in the Greek is a phrase, gird up your loins. And we don't, we don't ever say that, ever. And, um, and the reason is because is I don't wear a robe. So men and women wore long robes in that day. And so if they wanted to be able to move about or, or work on something or run or whatever, be active in any way, they had to pull up the corners of their robe and tuck it into their waist so they could move. They, they were girding up their robes. And what he's saying is like, gird up the loins of your mind for action. He's saying, if you, if you want to be consumed by the grace that is to come, you've got to get to work. Like our phrase would be, roll up your sleeves. You know, when we say roll up your sleeves, we mean it's time to get to work. That's what he's saying. It's time to get to work on this. Experience hope. Get your mind ready. So the, the phrase sober just means to be alert, to be reflective, to, to be thoughtful and understand what's going on. And he's just saying it, you got to have a sober mind, be alert to what's going on around you, and then set your mind, fill your mind with the things of eternity. And when I'm talking about the line and I'm talking about eternity, I'm not talking about something that happens after we die purely. I'm talking about something that has already begun in us. Eternity has, is now in flight, as Dallas Willard says. Jesus has invaded our world. The kingdom has come in part. The Holy Spirit has indwelt our lives. Eternity is happening now. There is a a kingdom among us that can't be seen apart from the Spirit of God giving you eyes to see. Live for that reality. That's what he's saying. Get your mind on that. Fill your heart and your affections with those realities. You have to be sober-minded. Of course, the word sober makes you think of drunkenness. And, and, and that's a, a relevant way to think about it. So the problem with drunkenness is it clouds your vision. People can't see clearly. They don't make good decisions when they're drunk. And what Peter is saying is that there's, there's a kind of intoxication with the world that clouds your judgment, that keeps you from seeing the, the glorious realities of the kingdom of God among us. And so to think about it that way is to say, don't, don't let your mind drink up stuff that numbs you to the realities of God. Fill your mind with the glorious truths of who God is and what he's done for us. I have to, uh, I need to confess something to you guys. Uh, I, used to, I used to really like Starbucks coffee. I mean, I, like, I drink it all the time. And I really liked it. It was like my coffee of choice. Uh, you know what? It's worse than that. 
I was just giving you part of the story. I'm sorry. Here's the whole story. I used to get mocha javas. Like, that was my drink. <laughs> mocha java latte? I don't even know. I don't remember what it was. It was my former passions. But I, that's what I used to get, and I loved it. I thought that was really living the good life. I'm much better now. Uh, this morning, I had a counterculture being poured over. I, I've recovered. I'm doing really well. Thank you for asking. You know, if you're a coffee snob, then, then one of the things that burdens you is that there are people out there drinking bad coffee. And it's because they haven't seen it. They, they haven't tasted the good stuff yet. And it's a burden. It's a compassion that we carry around with us. Coffee snobs do. And, and if you know a coffee snob, you know how, how they're always asking you. They're like, no, come on, try this. Try, let me buy this cup for you. Let me, let me get you to try that. I'm always trying to get people to drink good coffee because I care about them and their souls. I want you to know what a single-origin AeroPressed cup of coffee smells like and tastes like and how satisfying it is. Um, if, you're, if you're on the other end of that, if you're like, man, shut up about the coffee. I don't care. Uh, one, you're in the wrong city. Two, you know what it's like when people are kind of like pressing you on it, and I'm always pressing people on it. My kids, because, because they have a dad who loves coffee, have, have expressed some interest in coffee, and I've given them some taste, and, you know, they, they spit it out. They hate it. And it's okay. They're immature. And this is the thing about taste buds. Taste buds change. You literally can change your taste buds. And so if you'll just commit, like discipline yourself to drinking the good stuff, make the sacrifices that are necessary you'll actually acquire a taste for it. And when you get there, when you get to the point where you're like, I can't believe I was ever like a mocha java guy, ever. I, can't, I don't even understand. Then you'll understand. You'll have, you'll have tasted the good stuff and you'll know. That's when you'll know. So you gotta, you gotta just commit to it. You gotta set your hope fully on getting to be the kind of person who tastes a good cup of coffee and knows it. The reason I bring that up is because uh, if you read the commentaries, they'll basically all say that when Peter's writing this, it's like he has Psalm 34 open before him. And there's, he quotes it twice in this part of the letter. And there's references all throughout from Psalm 34. And you know, you know what verses in Psalm 34, you know what the key verse is? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you set your hope fully on the grace that is to come? Drink up the good news of the gospel. Drink up the things of God. If it doesn't taste right, if it's kind of strange at first, stay with it. Let God transform your taste so that you get to the place where you drink him up and you say, he is good. I can taste it. That's what it means to set your hope fully on the grace that's to come. Be committed to it. That's the first thing. Hope. If you want to live for the line, set your hope on the grace to come. Here's the second one. It's about holiness. Next verse, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, we, when we think about holiness, we tend to think about moral conduct or how we're living our lives. And let me just say, that is absolutely part of it. But it's not all of what's being talked about here. There's a much bigger picture that's being referenced here, and it's, it's, really, it's really important. P- 
Peter's quoting a phrase that shows up uh, four times in the book of Leviticus, which all of you have read recently, I'm sure. In Leviticus, we find holy things, not holy people, things, holy tables, cups, that sort of stuff. What makes, why, what makes them holy? They're just things. Well, they're holy because they've been consecrated and set apart for the worship of God. And so this table that used to belong to me, God said, I want that, set that aside, and I would clean it and purify it, and it would be given to the priests for the use of worship. And it used to belong to me, and now it belongs to God, and that's what makes it holy. It's the same stinking table. It's holy now. It used to be common, and now it's holy because it belongs to God now. And the same idea is applied to the people of Israel. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he made a promise to them. He said, I, from now on, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It was a unique covenant relationship between God and the people of Israel. He chose them. He called them. He delivered them. And he said, you, and he promised them. They were his God, or they were his people, and he was their God. And God had a purpose for doing these things. It wasn't arbitrary. They were to be a blessing to the nations. They were to be the light of the world. And how would they do that? Well, in a nutshell, they would be a light to the world by being different than the world. Uh, They would worship God. In contrast to all the pagan cultures around them who worship many gods, they would worship the one true living God, Yahweh. And they would obey His commands. You start reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy and books like that from this time period and they're just full of laws and commands and rules. And if, if you don't have a context for it, it's kind of strange. And, and it would have been strange to the surrounding cultures as well. But there was a purpose for them. As the people of God obeyed these commands, you know what the people around them would begin to see? They would begin to see what love and mercy and justice looks like according to the wisdom of God. It would be strange, but then there would be something really appealing about it as well. So they were to be a light in their worship and in their conduct. They weren't perfect people, but they were a set-apart people for God's use. That's what made them holy. That's the foundation of the command that we get here in 1 Peter. To be holy fundamentally means that we belong to God. It describes our relationship with Him. He is our God, and we are His people. Now, just like all relationships, there are like moral implications for the relationship, right? When I got married to Debbie and we covenanted to one another, there were like ramifications of that commitment, of that relationship, right? I made vows of things that I would do and things that I wouldn't do. She reminds me of these things quite often because I'm bound to them. Now, is that just duty and rules? I'm like, ah, I knew it was just going to be all rules. no. It's the nature of the relationship. It's how I communicate love. It's how you look at Debbie and I and you know distinctly they're, they're married because of the way that they treat one another, the way that they're committed to one another. The same would be true here. There are rules, lots of rules. Peter's going to get into lots of stuff that you should do and not do. But, but if you only pay attention at that level, it'll be so frustrating. What you have to see underneath it is that you, you belong to God and that, that relationship is the basis of the call to live holy lives, to be holy in all your conduct. If you don't get that, what you think is holiness will not be holiness at all. It'll just be your best effort 
The command to be holy in all our conduct, it, it's overwhelming if you, if you think about it the wrong way. But it does give us a principle that can be applied if you think about it the right way. Right, so, if holiness is about just obeying the rules, then it gets really complex and you're always asking questions about like, well, so how far is too far and is it pre-tax or after-tax tithe? Or if you, you just get into all the like minutiae of like, what does it mean to obey if that's what it's about. But if holiness and obedience is about a relationship, then there's a remarkable simplicity to it, isn't there? You just have to ask the question, am I living for God or am I living for me? Do I belong to God or do I belong to myself? And you can just work it out very specifically in any area of your life. In the way that you're interacting with your boss, you can ask, does, does the way I'm interacting with my boss indicate that I'm living for God or I'm living for me? The way that you treat your kids, the way that you spend your free time, does, does that indicate that you belong to God and that you're stewarding your life for Him or that you belong to you and you can do whatever you want because you live in Austin? Right? It's a, there's a remarkable simplicity to it. Uh, we are uh, familiar with, with Peter from the Gospels. Uh, he makes a lot of mistakes, but one thing I'll say about Peter is that he's not afraid to go all in with Jesus. He's not afraid to set his hope fully on him. One of my favorite scenes is when, um, in his calling, Jesus comes to him. Peter's out fishing, and this isn't like leisure fishing. This is his job. This is his livelihood. It's probably his dad's business. He's going to inherit that from him. And so when it says Peter's fishing, it means I mean, his whole security, his future, his status in the community, all that's wrapped up in fishing. And so Jesus walks up to him when he's fishing, and he just says, hey, Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. You see what he's doing? He's inviting him to live for the line. I know what you got going on there is important, but at the end of the day, that's all it's about. It's just, it's just this little dot. Why don't you come live for the line with me? And Peter, it says, immediately drops his nets and follows Jesus. Immediately. See, if obedience is duty, you think about it. Well, I don't know, what are the pros and cons? Is, you know, if it's about relationship, it's about being captivated by a person, obedience is immediate and willful and joyful. And I know that most of you, if not all of you, have something. Just as Peter's got that net in his fist, you're holding on to something. And you're thinking about it. I don't know, do I want to obey God in this area of my life? And what Peter's asking us to do is to, to recognize Jesus is before us. Jesus is the one calling us. Let go and run to him. That's what it means to be holy, to be all in, committed to him. Peter continues this line of thought in the next command, which you see in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. So, we're still talking about uh, what it means to live as exiles. We're still talking about the future. So, in in 13, it was the hope that's coming. Here, it's the judgment that is coming. We're still talking about our conduct. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. What's added to the mix now is this idea of fear. What does this mean? To conduct yourselves with fear. And you're talking, I thought grace was coming. Why, why would I be afraid of grace? 
Uh, the key to understanding this is to see that the judge is our father. Like, if all you have is a judgment day and, and a judge who you know is impartial, doesn't cut any slack, if that's all you've got, then you should be absolutely terrified. But if the judge is your father, well, that, that changes things. It doesn't mean that he's going to be lax or it doesn't mean he's going to show favoritism. He, he, he's impartial. What it means is that you can trust him. To fear God means to run to him, not to run away from him. You run to him because you trust him. Fathers love their children. They can have standards. They can discipline their children, but they don't destroy their kids. So, so we're not afraid in the sense of we think of being afraid. The word means to have a deep reverence. We have this internal sense of awe and wonder for who God is and what he's done. And so we want to please him. We want to serve him. The only thing we fear is, is living our lives in such a way that indicates that, that he's not that big a deal to us. Because he, of course, is a huge deal. The thing that we fear is losing that sense of, of wonder and awe at who he is. So live your, conduct yourselves with a sense of fear and awareness of who God is, of his presence, of the judgments that's coming, but more importantly, that the judge is your father. Uh, this is what the people felt at Mount Sinai. So all throughout this text, um, the, the language of the Exodus and the deliverance from Exodus, it's all throughout here, so we'll just reference it here. But uh, Mount Sinai, after Israel's been delivered out of Egypt, Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the law, and he comes down, and he tells the people all the things that God had, had said that they're going to do. And then this is what they say. This is in Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And every time I've ever read that passage, I laugh out loud. I'm like, how naive are you guys? Of course you're not going to do it. Why would, you, why would you do that? Why would you set yourself up that way? But then this week as I was studying this text, I, I began to get a new insight into that. I can see why they said what they said. They had seen the holy God. They had seen his presence manifested on the mountain. They had heard his words spoken to them. And their hearts were stirred. Their affections were stirred. Everything in them felt like, all I want to do is please my God. And so, of course, they said, whatever you say, we'll do. It's what they genuinely felt. They were afraid of living their lives as though they had not seen and heard what they had just seen and heard. I understand what they were feeling in that moment. I also understand how they lost that feeling. They, you know, they got back to their lives as usual. Moses went back up on the mountain, was meeting with God, and it, just, it took longer than they thought it was going to take, and they began to get a little insecure and anxious about what was going on, and so they, they defaulted to their former passions. They made, they made an idol to worship. You're going to worship something. If you're not setting your hope on God and His grace, you'll, you'll make some idols. And that's what they do. When their hearts were engaged with God, when they were in his presence, filling their mind with him, they were totally in. They were, they were committed. They were motivated. But when their hearts drifted, when they grew cold, when they forgot who they were and whose they were, 
they, they regressed to their former passions. They lost their zeal. And so how do you stay engaged? How do you keep this mind reverent on God? Well, I think Peter gives us a really good clue here. It's not so much a clue as it is really obvious. He says in verse 17, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then here's the basis for it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers. This word ransom means, it's, one, it's a term of slavery and bondage. So if you were a slave, you could be ransomed. There could be a price paid for your freedom. And what he's saying is, you were ransomed. There was a price paid for your freedom. It wasn't with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see what Peter's saying? If you, if you want your life to indicate that, that you are mindful of God and His presence and His holiness and His laws, His good laws, then saturate yourself in the gospel. Keep your heart engaged in what He has done for you. It is not a small thing. He gave up His Son as a ransom for you. And if that sinks in, you know what comes out? Wonder, awe, obedience, hope. What happened to Israel? Well, they, they continually disobeyed God, like for a long, long time. And like a good father, God was patient with them. And like a good father, he stayed true to his word that he would discipline them after a time. He did. He, he raised up two nations to conquer Israel, to take them captive. And you can read about it in Jeremiah. This is what Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-eight says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city, Jerusalem, into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. So it was God's discipline that Israel was sent into exile and captivity. Then, this is just unbelievable. Like nine verses later, here's what God says. Like, fill your heart with this. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them. So I drove them. I'm a dad, I discipline my kids. I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. But he says, I will gather them. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. Look what he's saying. He's not saying, I'll show them. They'll be scared now. Not at all. He's saying, I'm going to pour out my mercy on them so that they never forget who I am and what I've done for them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why? So that they might not turn from me. I'll rejoice in doing good to them. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness and with all my heart and all my soul. A holy fear doesn't run away from God. A holy fear runs to God because we know the judge is our father and he will with all his heart and all his soul do good to us. We've looked at each of these individually. 
because they bring out unique aspects, but there is, there is a thread that runs through them, and that is the exaltation of the person and the work of Jesus. What are we hoping for? The grace that comes when he is revealed. Why do we fear God? Because he gave up his son as a ransom. He raised his son from the dead so that our faith and our hope might be in him. As we come to the communion meal, that is the thing. We exalt the person and the work of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. We, we think about this. We set our hope on it. The communion meal is this wonderful physical way to taste and to see that the Lord is good. So let me pray for this meal and then I'll explain how we take it together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.